Public Works Steampunk presents Jane Eyre. Written by Charlotte Bronte, with Steampunk Editions by R.A. Harding. Read by Danita Feldman. Chapter 3. In which Jane recovers and changes her life. The next thing I remember is waking up with a feeling as if I'd had a frightful nightmare and seeing before me a terrible red glare crossed with thick black bars. I heard voices too speaking with a hollow sound and as if muffled by a rush of wind or water. Agitation, uncertainty and an all-predominating sense of terror confused my young mind. Ere long, I became aware that someone was lifting me up and supporting me in a sitting posture, and more tenderly than I had ever been raised or upheld before. I rested my head against a pillow or an arm and felt easy. In five minutes more, the cloud of bewilderment dissolved. I knew quite well that I was in my own bed and that the red glare was the nursery fire. It was night. A lamp glowed on the table. Bessie stood at the bedfoot with a basin in her hand and a gentleman sat in a chair near my pillow leaning over me. I felt an inexpressible relief, a soothing conviction of protection and security. When I knew there was a stranger in the room, an individual not belonging to Gateshead and not related to Mrs. Reed. Turning from Bessie, I dimly observed the face of the gentleman. His face was made of a burnished bronze metal, a wire bristle moustache twitched above his upper lip, and his eyes, though made of glass and mechanism, were kinder than many living persons I had encountered. I knew him. It was Mr. Lloyd, the automaton apothecary, sometimes called in by Mrs. Reed when the servants, both mechanical and human, were ailing. For herself and the children, she employed a personal physician. Well, who am I? he asked, his voice sounding like a clanking music box in his throat. I pronounced his name, offering him at the same time my hand. He took it, smiling and saying, We shall do very well by and by. His hands were gloved like many automatons, so that those with warm flesh would not be startled by the cold metal. His grip was firm but gentle as he laid me down, and addressing Bessie instructed her that I was not disturbed during the night. He quickly took my vitals and reflexes, taking care to observe the timing and motion of my ocular gears. When he was satisfied that I was sound in both body and mechanism, having given some further directions and saying that he should call again the next day, he departed to my grief. Despite his lack of flesh and blood, I felt so sheltered and befriended while he sat in the chair near my pillow, and as he closed the door after him, all the room darkened and my heart again sank. Inexpressible sadness weighed it down. Do you feel as if you should sleep, miss? asked Bessie rather softly. I scarcely dared answer her, for I feared the next sentence might be full of tears. I will try. Would you like to drink, or could you eat anything? No, thank you, Bessie. 
then I think I shall go to bed, for it's past twelve o'clock, but you may call me if you want anything in the night. Wonderful but strange kindness, this. It emboldened me to ask a question. Bessie, what is the matter with me? Am I ill? You fell sick, I suppose, in the red room with crying. You'll be better soon, no doubt. Bessie went into the housemaid's apartment, which was near. I heard her say, Sarah, come and sleep with me in the nursery. I daren't for my life be alone with that poor child tonight. She might die. It's such a strange thing she should have that fit. I wonder if she saw anything. Mrs. was rather too hard. Sarah came back with her. They both went to bed. They were whispering together for half an hour before they fell asleep. I caught scraps of their conversation, from which I was able to easily understand what they were discussing. Something passed her all dressed in white and vanished. A great black dog behind him. Three loud raps on the chamber door, a screaming like a beast made of metal and flesh, a light in the shrine room over his picture, etc., etc. At last, both slept. The fire went out, and the gas lamp was turned down. For me, the hours of that long night passed in ghastly wakefulness, strained by dread, such dread as children only can feel. No severe or prolonged bodily illness followed this incident of the Red Room. It only gave my nerves a shock of which I feel the reverberation to this day. Yes, Mrs. Reed, to you I owe some fearful pangs of mental suffering. But I ought to forgive you, for you knew not what you did. While rending my heartstrings, you thought you were only uprooting my bad propensities. Next day, by noon, I was up and dressed and sat wrapped in a shawl by the nursery hearth. I felt physically weak and broken down, but worse was an unspeakable depression of mind, a sadness which kept drawing from me silent tears. No sooner had I wiped one salt drop from my cheek than another followed. Yet I thought I ought to have been happy, for none of the reeds were there. They were all gone out in the carriage with their mamma. Abbott, too, was sewing in another room. And Bessie, as she moved hither and thither, putting away toys and arranging drawers, with the help of a few faceless automaton maids, addressed to me every now and then a word of uncommon kindness. This state of things should have been to me a paradise of peace, accustomed as I was to a life of ceaseless reprimand and thankless work. But in fact, my racked nerves were now in such a state that no calm could soothe, and no pleasure delight or ease them. Bessie had been down into the kitchen, and she brought up with her a tart on a brightly painted china plate, whose bird of paradise nestling in a wreath of morning glory and rosebuds had previously stirred in me a most enthusiastic sense of delight, and which plate I had often begged to be allowed to hold in order to examine it more closely but had always been deemed unworthy of such a privilege. This precious item was now placed on my knee, and I was cordially invited to eat the delicate pastry upon it. Vain favour, coming like most other favours long deferred and often wished for, too late. I could not eat the tart, and the plumage of the bird and the tints of the flowers seemed strangely faded. I put both plate and tart away. 
Bessie asked if I would have a book. The word book acted as a passing stimulus, and I begged her to fetch Gulliver's Travels from the library. This book I had again and again perused with delight. I considered the tale to be factual, and discovered in it a vein of interest deeper than what I found in fairy tales. For as to the elves, having sought them in vain among the foxglove leaves and bells, under mushrooms and beneath the ground ivy mantling old walnooks, I had at length made up my mind to the sad truth, that they were all gone out of England to some savage country where the woods were wilder and thicker and the population more scant. Whereas Lilliput and Brobdingnag being in my idea solid parts of the earth's surface, I doubted not that I might one day, by taking a long voyage, see with my own eyes the little fields, houses and trees, the diminutive people, the tiny cows, sheep and birds of the one realm, and the cornfields forest high, the mighty mastiffs, the monster cats, the tower-like men and women of the other. Yet, when this cherished volume was now placed in my hand, when I turned over its pages and sought in its marvellous pictures the charm I had, till now, never failed to find, all was eerie and dreary. The giants were gaunt goblins, the pygmies malevolent and fearful imps, Gulliver a most desolate wanderer in most dread and dangerous regions. My clockwork and natural eye alike blurred as tears welled up and dropped onto the pages. Though I reached up and gently adjusted the focusing mechanisms, it was not my eyes that struggled to focus, but my turbulent mind. I closed the book, which I dared no longer peruse, and put it on the table beside the untasted tart. Bessie had now finished dusting and tidying the room, and she opened a certain little drawer full of splendid shreds of silk and satin and began making a new bonnet for Georgiana's doll. Meantime, she sang. Her song was... In the days when we went roaming a long time ago... I had often heard the song before and always with lively delight, for Bessie had a sweet voice, at least I thought so. But now, though her voice was still sweet, I found in its melody an indescribable sadness. Sometimes, preoccupied with her work, she sang the refrain very low, very lingeringly, a long time ago, came out like the saddest cadence of a funeral hymn. She passed into another ballad, this time a really doleful one. My feet they are sore, and my limbs they are weary. Long is the way, and the skies are wild. Soon will the twilight close, moonless and dreary, over the path of the poor patchwork child. Why did they send me so far and so lonely, up where the moor spread and derelicts are piled? Men are hard-hearted and kind, heavy only. Watch all the steps of a poor patchwork child. 
Yet distant and soft the night breeze is blowing. Out there are none and clear stars be mild. God's in their mercy protection is showing. Comfort and hope to the poor patchwork child. Even should I fall o'er the broken bridge passing, Or stray in the marshes by false lights beguiled, Still will the gods with promise and blessing Take to their bosom the poor patchwork child. There is a thought that for strength should avail me, Though both of shelter and kindred despoiled, Heaven is a home and a rest will not fail me, the gods are a friend to the poor patchwork child. Come, Miss Jane, don't cry, said Bessie as she finished. She might as well have said to the fire, don't burn. But how could she understand the depression and suffering I endured? In the course of the morning, Mr Lloyd came again. I heard the light ticking and click of machinery of his approach as he was shown into the nursery. What? Already up? said he as he came near to me in the warm hearth. Well, nurse, how is she? Bessie answered that I was doing very well. He stretched his hands towards the fire and the mechanical sounds of his joints became less sharp as the oil and metal warmed. While he was doing this, his head turned to one side as he looked me over, observing the untouched book and pastry, and then closer at my pale face. She ought to look more cheerful. Come here, Miss Jane. Your name is Jane, is it not? Yes, sir, Jane Eyre. Well, you have been crying, Miss Jane Eyre. Can you tell me what about? Have you any pain? The cut on your head? Do the gears near your eye need any linseed oil? Mine often do in cooler weather, he said kindly. No, sir. Oh, I dare say she is crying because she could not go out with the missus in the carriage, interposed Bessie. Surely not. Why, she is too old for such pettishness. I thought so too, and my self-esteem being wounded by the false charge, I answered promptly, I never cried for such a thing in my life. I hate going out in the carriage. I cry because I am miserable. Oh, fie, miss, said Bessie. The good apothecary appeared a little puzzled. I was standing before him. He fixed his eyes on me very steadily. His eyes were glassy, small and grey. He had been built with a hard-featured yet good-natured-looking face. I could hear the gears inside his head ticking as if considering what on his list of questions he might ask a patient which would apply to my situation. Having considered me a while, he said, What made you ill yesterday? She had a fall, said Bessie, again putting in her word. Fall? 
Can't she manage to walk at her age? She must be eight or nine years old. I was knocked down, was the blunt explanation, jerked out of me by another pang of stung pride. But that did not make me ill, I added. While listening to me, Mr. Lloyd helped himself to a dropper full of oil, applying it liberally but with routine movements to facial joints. As he was returning the little bottle to his waistcoat pocket, a loud bell rang for the servant's dinner. He knew what it was. That's for you, nurse, said he. You can go down. I'll give Miss Jane a lecture till you come back. Bessie would rather have stayed, but she was obliged to go because punctuality at meals was rigidly enforced at Gateshead Hall. The fall did not make you ill. What did then, pursued Mr Lloyd when Bessie was gone. I was shut up in a room where there is a ghost till after dark. I saw Mr Lloyd smile and frown at the same time and his wire bristle eyebrows knit together a little. I do not think he was built to believe in ghosts, but he also had the programming to be kind. Ghost? You are afraid of ghosts? Of Mr. Reed's ghost, I am. He died in that room and was laid out there. His body was not burnt, so his soul cannot reach the next incarnation. Neither Bessie nor anyone else will go into it at night, if they can help it, and it was cruel to shut me up alone without a candle or a lamp lit, so cruel that I think I shall never forget it. And is it that makes you so miserable? Are you afraid now in daylight? No, but night will come again before long, and besides, I am unhappy, very unhappy, for other things. What other things? Can you tell me some of them? How much I wish to reply fully to this question. How difficult it was to frame any answer. Children can feel, but they cannot analyse their feelings. And if the analysis is partially tangled in thought, they know not how to express the resulting words. Fearful, however, of losing this first and only opportunity to release my grief by sharing it, I, after a troubled pause, attempted to share a true response. For one thing, I have no father or mother, brothers or sisters. You have a kind aunt and cousins. Again, I paused, then clumsily blurted, but John Reed knocked me down and my aunt shut me up in the red room. Mr Lloyd a second time produced his oil bottle. He partook by adding some to joints across his face, rattled slightly, and then responded with a series of questions which drew from me answers I had not anticipated. With the benefit of time, I now understand that his questioning was a logic program designed to diagnose my ailment, yet it was the most compassionate action any man or mechanical had taken towards me since my uncle had died. Don't you think Gateshead Hall a very beautiful house? asked he. Are you not very thankful to have such a fine place to live at? It is not my house, sir, and Abbot says I have less right to be here than a servant. Do you wish to leave such a splendid place? If I had anywhere else to go, I should be glad to leave it, but I can never get away from Gateshead till I am a woman. Perhaps you may. 
who knows? Have you any relations besides Mrs. Reed? I think not, sir. None belonging to your father? I don't know. I asked Aunt Reed once, and she said possibly I might have some poor low relations called heir, but she knew nothing about them. If you had such, would you like to go to them? I reflected. Poverty looks grim to grown people, still more so to children. They have not much idea of industrious, working, respectable poverty. They think of the word only as connected with ragged clothes, scanty food, fireless grates, rude manners, and debasing vices. Poverty for me was synonymous with degradation. No, I should not like to belong to poor people, was my reply. Not even if they were kind to you? I shook my head. I could not see how poor people had the means of being kind, and then to learn to speak like them, to adopt their manners, to be uneducated, to grow up like one of the poor women I saw sometimes nursing their children or washing their clothes at the cottage doors of the village of Gateshead. No, I was not heroic enough to purchase liberty at the price of social status. But are your relatives so very poor? Are they working people? I cannot tell. Aunt Reed says if I have any, they must be a beggarly set. I should not like to go a-begging. Mr. Lloyd paused, turning his head to the side as the mechanics within considered my answer and soon produced another inquiry. Would you like to go to school. Again, I reflected. I scarcely knew what school was. Bessie sometimes spoke of it as a place where young ladies sat in the stocks, wore backboards, and were expected to be exceedingly genteel and precise. John Reed hated his school and abused his professors. But John Reed's tastes were no rule for mine, and if Bessie's accounts of school discipline, gathered from the young ladies of a family where she had lived before coming to Gateshead, were somewhat appalling, her details of certain accomplishments attained by these same young ladies were, I thought, equally attractive. She boasted of beautiful paintings of landscapes and flowers by them executed, of songs they could sing and pieces they could play, of French books they could translate, some even learning to ride horses and pilot small airships, till my spirit was moved to longing as I listened. Besides, School would be a complete change. It implied a long journey, an entire separation from Gateshead, an entrance into a new life. I should indeed like to go to school, was the audible conclusion of my musings. Well, well, who knows what may happen, said Mr Lloyd as he got up with a soft click and ticking. The child ought to have a change of air and scene, he added, speaking to himself, nerves not in a good state. Bessie now returned at the same moment the carriage was heard rolling up the gravel walk. Is that your mistress, nurse? asked Mr Lloyd. I should like to speak to her before I go. Bessie invited him to walk into the breakfast room and led the way out. In the interview which followed between him and Mrs. Reed, I presume from after-occurrences, 
that the mechanical apothecary ventured to recommend my being sent to school. And the recommendation was no doubt readily enough adopted, for as Abbott said in discussing the subject with Bessie when both sat sewing in the nursery one night after I was in bed, and as they thought asleep, Mrs. Walsh, she dared say, glad enough to get rid of such a tiresome, ill-conditioned child who always looked as if she were watching everybody and scheming plot. Abbott, I think, gave me credit for being a sort of infantine Guy Fawkes. On that same occasion, I learned for the first time from Miss Abbott's whispered story to Bessie that my father had been a poor clergy pundit in a travelling town, that my mother had married him against the wishes of her friends who considered the match beneath her, that my grandfather Reed was so irritated at her disobedience he cut her off without a shilling, that after my mother and father had been married a year they were caught in a terrible storm while travelling on an airship and the storm brought them down. In the crash they were gravely injured and both died from their trauma within a month of each other. I also fell from the sky in that fateful crash, but my parents and the gods sheltered my fall, so the crash only took the sight from my right eye. It was my uncle Reed who took pity on me, had me brought to his family home and paid for, at great expense, the intricate mechanical eye that now gave me sight and made me an interesting spectacle to those who bothered to observe me. Bessie, when she heard this narrative, sighed and said, Poor Miss Jane is to be pitied too, Abbott. Yes, responded Abbott, if she were a nice pretty child, one might compassionate her forlornness. But one really cannot care for such a little clockwork toad as that. Not a great deal, to be sure, agreed Bessie. At any rate, a beauty like Miss Georgiana would be more moving in the same condition. Yes, I dote on Miss Georgiana, cried the fervent abbot. Little darling, with her long curls and her blue eyes, and such a sweet colour as she has, just as if she were painted. Bessie, I could fancy a Welsh rabbit for supper. So could I, with a roast onion. Come, we'll go down. They went. Thank you for listening to this chapter of Public Work Steampunk Presents Jane Eyre. This book is copyright 2021 by R.A. Harding. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. The music box intro and outro was recorded by Nicholas Drewski. If you would like to read the author's notes on the chapter or order the book, please go to publicworksteampunk.com. And while you're there, join the mailing list to get a -a one-of-a-kind infographic about the book and more. Farewell for the present.